Greetings, everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and Salam Alaikum. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you, each and every one of you, tuning into the broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texas broadcast. By Tex, I am Tex, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. It is my pride and privilege to be doing so. So thank each and every one of you. Listeners, new and old, this is your first episode. This is your 400th episode. Thank you, each and every one of you, for supporting by listening. The more you listen, the better, the faster, the harder, the stronger we grow. And we continue to rocket towards the sun in terms of rising listener numbers internationally rising consistent high rankings and charts even in the United States but maintaining our top 10, top 20 position average in countries like Ireland many nations in the EU the Middle East, South America, and across Africa and Asia. We are listened to on all seven continents in every major nation of the world, and I thank each and every one of you. From the bottom of my heart, most sincerely, I am obliged to you, and I hope I continue to deliver the incredible information on as consistently of a basis as I am doing it. It's a schedule of my own making, and I hold myself up to the highest standards, and I believe each and every one of us as creators or as human beings should always be responsible for doing their best. That's very important as a sentiment leading into this episode, which we'll run right into. Godzilla and the Doom meme. The Doom memetics. The significance of this cannot be understated although it remains extremely obscure difficult even to see with adept eyes with illumined eyes For although I have gone from the west, the land of the dead, to the east, the land of the rising dawn sun, home of the morning star, that celestial fellow traveler, set on their course, At the 33rd degree 
I see. Past what the vast majority, the 99.99% see. But I still find the true meaning, the alchemical meaning behind the Godzilla franchise. Well camouflaged behind the spectacle of a big ass monster lizard going rawr. And I think truly that is the master craft of the occult. At least in terms of cinema. That they can tell a story, they can show you a film for two hours. And an adult human being who is educated, mind you, who is looking to see the hidden meaning, the symbolism. can fall into the suspension of disbelief and return to that childish wonder of enjoying the spectacle of destruction on an apocalyptic scale. To remember again the love of imaginary monsters. To see heroes rise, men overcome their fears, and triumph against great adversity. Surviving against nature as the ancestors did to bring us physically alive to this present day. One begins to see the military hardware as a child sees toys. And one begins to understand the loss of innocent life as being both tragic and seemingly inevitable as the march of the great Godzilla beast itself through the streets of Tokyo. For many people in the world, not just Japan or America, because it truly is an international sensation, 
And it overwhelmingly is a sensation for children. And I'm not going to say that adults do not like God's... Adults do love and cherish Godzilla as well. But it is unquestionably media for children. It is media for a younger person. And the young at heart. It's not Schindler's List. It's not... um, Last Tango in Paris. It is Godzilla. And it knows what it is. The themes may be serious. The themes may be more serious than in those films, even. But it knows to deliver it in a way appropriate for children and the young at heart. And it does so brilliantly. Because... With the inclusion of Godzilla as a... in Possible, fantastic, and I use that in air quotes. You guys know I believe in kaiju in real life, and that the sea leviathans, behemoths, etc., exceed even the size of Godzilla by many, many hundreds of scale. Um, that's even scarier in real life. Godzilla's pretty fucking tame, and we wish, we wish that was the worst of the problems. But no, like the, the Noah and Navy um, people have their fucking hands full with this shit, and uh, there is a direct correlation, which in the film they do allude to between the atomic tests and the arrival, or at least the the awakening and the neutralizing of these threats out in the ocean. But luckily the ocean is uh, way fucking bigger than anyone can possibly imagine. Um, There are points in the Pacific Ocean where you could drill straight through the center of the Earth and still come out of the Pacific Ocean. So, uh, yeah, you know, good. Godzilla's in the Pacific Ocean keep him fucking there, because he's like, he can just walk around for fucking hundreds of years, and never even approach the coast. It's got a lot of, like, you know, it's got a lot of uh, free range, right? So, just just try to keep him inside the, the, the border, right? And keep inside bounds. Um, but yeah, just like keep inside the basketball court, basically. But, uh, yeah, like, because of the inclusion of Godzilla, Themes that are typically censored, like historically in the 1954 Gojira film, such as PTSD, uh, war casualties, the criticisms of a militaristic society that cannot defend itself, but endangers its citizens through the, like, you know, through the uh, out of control aspects of the military industrial complex such as the development of nuclear weapons the involvement of foreign wars the foreign policies etc the relationship with the Americans uh, being this Godzilla minus one um, briefly mentioned but kind of the entire reason for the events of the film is because the Americans who caused this with the nuclear tests in Bikini Atoll or the, the hydrogen bomb tests in Bikini Atoll refused to help out the Japanese population during the reconstruction because of international pressures from the Soviet Union and a veiled attempt by to say, well, they're busy with the Korean War. So the idea that a civilian inside an empire 
such as a Japanese civilian, a, say, family, um, you know, a mother or a child, in Imperial Japan, who survived the bombings, fire bombings of Tokyo, or the 85% of the infrastructure that was destroyed during the air raids on Japan by the United States Air Corps, a division of the U.S. Army, as well as the United States Navy and its air wing, as well as the soldiers that fought and died on islands across the Pacific like Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, Indonesia, Australasia, etc. As well as the politicians, the lower bureaucrats, the scientists, the academics, basically every single person with a Japanese identity was equally victimized by the nature of the beast, the superorganism of the ever-evolving, out-of-control military-industrial complex that is either created by supernations, superpowers, like the United States, like the Soviet Union, or victimized as side effects, not even the intentional effect, but as side effects. This in Godzilla Minus One, a film I recently just seen, in many ways this is not a review of, but this is directly inspired by. As played as the Japanese being the victims of this extremely unfair, one-sided decision post-war, including the hardships of having to rebuild the neglect from the responsible nation of their destruction, the United States, the failure of their own corrupt puppet government, the uh, etc., 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 right? But remember, the, the great irony of all of this, the truth of all of this is even harder to swallow because, like I said, this is made for children, and even though it is... Uh, meat-flavored baby food. It is still baby food. It is not steak. And those with sharpened teeth know that the Japanese fucked up a lot of people. Like, beyond recognition. Uh, Rape of Nanking, for example. Uh, You can look that up. Look up how they treated Manchurians, uh, who are now Koreans. You can look that up. They literally tested biological weapons and torture methods on them and a thing called Unit 751. Uh, you can watch about Unit 751 and a thing called Philosophy of the Knife. It is a excellent documentary. Um, yeah, uh, they did a lot of war crimes, say, through Vietnam, which was French Indochina at the time. Indonesia, they committed cannibalism. Uh, because of their own supply lines. And remember, uh, 80, I think it was 75% of all the soldiers in Japan died of illness and starvation. That is a real, that is a real statistic. 
illness and starvation because they were sent to the jungles without proper medication, even for malaria. And they were expected to find food literally where they walked. So they started eating prisoners of war and they started eating villagers and shit. This was absolutely known about. The Japanese had to resort to cannibalism in many, in many incidences. Including such retarded shit that you hear about and you can't even fucking fathom because it's just so brutal and horrible. But it was completely caused by the Japanese uh, mentalities of World War II. Like the Rimri Island disaster? Oh my fucking god. The Rimri Island Massacre, I believe is what it's called. The Rimri Island Massacre, I believe, is actually a direct psychological psionic inspiration for Godzilla. In which, in World War II, Japanese Imperial soldiers in the Japanese army... um, were fighting in a swampy island in one of the fucking jungles where they were, uh, you know, near the Indochina uh, Pacific Ocean area, you know, like the, the Indonesia, all that fucking shit. I don't, it gets lost in time. I, I, you know, so many details in that shit. But Rimuri Island was somewhere around there because they had crocodiles. They had saltwater crocodiles or some shit. And they had a whole island like a swampy fucking island that had never even been walked on before to live on. And they were huge dinosaur-sized crocodiles, like 30 feet, 20 feet, you know, fucking big. And these Japs were fighting the British, and they were trying to outmaneuver the British or retreat or something. And they ended up walking just right into this swamp because the leadership was like, yeah, we'll just walk through this swamp. And show up and, and, you know, rout the British and, and we need to win. This is how we're going to do it. And in doing so, so, somewhere between like 3,000 men were eaten by crocodiles over the course of like a few days. And the British who were there, but, it, you know, they were in the swamp. They, they were hearing, and they were hearing the gunfire, and they were hearing the screams, and they were hearing the commotion, the chaos, uh, the, you know, the cries out and the yelling and stuff, because it was echoing through the forest, and they were only like a mile or, or two away. If anyone in real life knows what I'm talking about, it takes a long fucking time to walk through a swamp. And say, like, you could be a mile... To, to walk a mile through wetland swamp would probably take you all fucking day. You have to compensate with your boots getting muddy. You have to compensate for deep water. You know, water that may be too deep to walk through. You have to compensate for a lot of shit. And if you're walking with thousands of men, uh, weapons, shit like you're trying to keep dry, like food, you know, gunpowder and stuff, you're trying to walk around with your guns over your heads and stuff, you're going to need to stop and rest. And, and then you start factoring in crocodile attacks. First, it's one man screaming out. Then it's two. Then it's three, four, five. Then people are running, they're panicking, they're running up trees, they're scattering, they're firing incoherently into the water, so there's going to be friendly fire, there's going to be people um, going complete fucking mental and like breaking down, having panic attacks and shit, and, and, and uh, all order is going to be broken. So basically, I mean, it adds up that they were, they wandered in, got halfway in, could not escape, and had to sit there and fucking get eaten one at a time. And as, you know, the days went by, as the screams stopped. 
and and then eventually they were found either um, the remains of it that was that was just reported on by the British, Grimory Island massacre, and shit. This shit happened. They they um, had severely brutal POW camps, for example. They had Bataan death marches. They took over the island of Bataan in the Philippines. And then uh, fucking got all the Filipino and American and British POWs and forced them to walk in a hundred degree plus heat. I think it was 30 miles in which people were dropping down dead from fucking dehydration and shit. And if they either bent a knee or stopped or fell down, the Japanese would just walk over and kill them because they had water. Because they had swords. That's what I'm saying. Like, they would just chop their fucking heads off and with the swords and stuff like that. Like, they would, there was reports of them just riding horses, officers riding horses because they were bored during the walk and chopping off the tallest man's head that they could find. Just because, you know, it's like, yeah, you're, it's like, you're the tallest. I'm going to chop your head off and shit like that. Just brutal. Brutal fucking shit. And as, hard as the Anglos and the whites and the Westerners and the Europeans got it from the Japanese, the natives who were considered subhumans, and I mean native Asians, native dark-skinned uh, people of the, of the Indochinas and the Indonesians and stuff like that, like the Fijians and the Javans, they were killed on sight and eaten. They were considered subhumans, not even worth slave labor. But for the soldiers, it wasn't much better. For example, a bunch of Australians got captured at one point, and this is reported on. A bunch of Australians got captured on during the uh, Japanese invasion of like Northern Australia and shit like that. And they put them in a giant metal cage um, that was used for livestock. They put them in this. They put like twenty men inside this giant metal cage that was used for livestock, like a cattle car, and just threw it in the ocean. They just drowned him. They just fucking threw it in the ocean. And, and that was it. And they, that, was, that was just what the Japanese did. Like, they didn't have any mercy. And so, I believe Godzilla, in many ways, is... Is Japan's trying to whitewash and play the victim. Um, in many ways, to try to... Try to uh, compensate for its own brutality and hardships by perpetually punishing itself in this fantasy that it has developed where it is the victim of itself because if it wasn't for Japan like in the, in the, the normie bullshit Freemason history uh, if it wasn't for Japan's imperial aggressions, which started in the 1920s, by the way, started in the 1910s into the 1920s, which they were allies of the United States and the United States trained. Do you want to hear the truth, the black pill truth of all this shit? The Emperor Hirohito was a Freemason. Emperor Hirohito, the sun god, the sun emperor, right, the god king of Japan, was a Freemason, and he was educated. They were all educated for the last couple of hundred years. They knew they weren't gods. They knew they weren't deified human beings. They knew they were just a warrior cast of samurai who were very, very educated. And they were very smart, and they knew how to keep power. Um, but he hated it, being an emperor. He hated it. He fucking hated it. He wanted to wear a Mickey Mouse watch. He'd go to Disneyland and shit. Fucking go shopping. He was a scientist. He was a marine biologist. He studied um, medusas and, and small single-celled 
creatures in ocean water. He was a fascinating, fascinatingly human and down-to-earth autistic man who had, like most autistic people, extreme confidence in progress. And he wanted to change the world, which he thought was stupid. The adherence to tradition was primitive and stupid. But the only way he could possibly quit and change Japan into a modernized secular society controlled by European values and industry was by deposing himself as emperor in a defeat. A military defeat. Which is something the Japanese imperial family had never, ever suffered before. So, together with his Freemason buddies, uh, we're talking the kings of Europe, we're talking uh, Woodrow Wilson, we're talking all these uh, fucking super badass Americans, right? We're talking Rockefellers, we're talking the Rothschilds, we're talking the Freemasonic elite, right? He wasn't a blue lodge, he was, you know, well above 33 and stuff like that, like 36 and shit. Um, You know, he was, he was prompted and allowed to create the war machine, you know, to tell the generals what to do. The generals were all Freemasons, too. The generals were all Freemasons as well, the ones that he trusted. To do Pearl Harbor, to rape Nanking, to invade Manchuria, to invade mainland China, to invade French and China, to invade Australia, even. To do everything he could to destroy his own country with a disastrous... Soup, like like multiple front war that involved everything from jungle warfare to like fighting America itself. And like, what the fuck? On paper, this looks stupid. On paper, your entire nation's the size of California. America's like, like on paper, like it just if you, the Japanese aren't stupid, they had been taught military naval tactics by the U.S. Navy itself. Because the U.S. Navy, being Freemasons, was training the people who were going to make this fake war with them and train them how to lose because they, they knew what they had trained them and what they didn't know. And they didn't know aircraft carriers very well, but they had taught them aircraft carriers, but they didn't know, like, submarines. Uh, no, that's the thing. They knew aircraft carriers because Americans trained them on aircraft carriers. That's why they used them. But they didn't know submarines because submarines were taught by the Germans and stuff like that. And the, even though they had German allies, the Germans didn't teach them or give them really any technology. They were also controlled by the Freemasons. Their allies fucked them. Right? But then again, the Emperor knew this was going to happen. The Emperor wanted it to happen because he wasn't the one going to die. He wasn't the one going to actually suffer any personal loss. He was going to free himself using the combined human sacrifice of millions of Japanese citizens. And in doing so, made America Japan's new god. In doing so, made the dollar, the U.S. dollar, Japan's new god emperor. But also, freed himself from the actual responsibilities and obligations of ruling a society. Japan is run by a parliamentary republic system now. It is not run with divine decree from an emperor. It is part of the G8 world system. Funny how they call it the G8, right? You know what G in Freemason stands for? Grandmaster, the Grand Masterful Eight, right? 
that's the thing. The Japan is part of the WEF, World Economic Fund. Japan is part of NATO. I mean, Japan is part of the UN and shit like that. Not NATO. Uh, Japan is part of the UN. Japan has its own, like you said, vested interest with the United States Defense Force and stuff. Let's them defend them. Unlike the movies where Japan is, like, especially in this Godzilla Minus One film, where God, Japan is seen as skeptical and does not want the Japanese uh, military presence, the Japanese themselves, politically like elite, welcome the, Jap- the, mil- the American military presence because they knew in the Cold War they're not going to be able to fill these giant, massive military machines without... You know, without there just being war, and there once there's war, they're a target. And if it's not the Americans, it'll be the Chinese. If it's not the Chinese, it'll be the Koreans. If it's not the Koreans, it'll be the Russians. If it's not the Russians, it'll be the fucking um, uh, I don't know, the the Filipinos or somebody that invades fucking Japan. They realize this. They're not stupid. They're the smartest people on the fucking planet. They got together and they realized in the 20th century, somebody will invade them. And they will have to fight a war in Japan, which they have not done. And they will, they hopefully will never have to do. That's why America did not invade Japan. America destroyed the old Japan, Japanese society and world and destroyed all their buildings as planned to, because they wanted to reconstruct it, they wanted to rebuild it. But they did not put soldiers and an invasion, like formations, armies, and shit like that in Japan to save their face, to save respect. And it's all part of theater. It's all Freemasonic theater. But they knew that once a hostile army takes over Japan, that would be one of the biggest death blows to world culture. Because the idea of a solidified nation of Japan... Based on isolationism, etc., it would be it's it's extremely symbolically important. The Freemasons know this, and it could possibly be due to the bloodline of Christ or something, uh, being Japanese and everything. So there's there's a lot of evidence that Japan that Jesus Christ went to Japan. I'm not fucking lying. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that, and it's uh, pretty eerie. Uh, when you actually think about how just obscure, but not even top secret it is. Like, you just go look at it. There's books written and shit about it. Um, but yeah, that's a, you know, I digress. But yeah, Japan, the symbolism, like the reason why this is all happening. You see that this is a far more of an illusion. This is far more of an occult admission as well as the masterwork of sleight of hand and keeping people only aware of the message that you want to tell them. This is a game of half-truths. This is a game of memetics. This is a game of doomsday memetics. Of doom memetics. This is a game of disasters. And telling people victories and losses. Telling people the bad news. While making yourself seem blameless. Or in fact even heroic. And I think of this film, Godzilla Minus One, and in the Godzilla franchise, in a historical, materialist, Marxist way, as well as a symbolic, alchemical, occultist way. 
And I'll explain very quickly that I believe that Godzilla Minus One is a great masterpiece despite its half-truths, the idea of World War II and the origins of Godzilla itself, the remake of it, right? The re- constant remaking of it to portray themselves as villain, as, as victims, not villains. And the Japanese need to be victims because the real truth is even more horrible than suffering through the attacks of Godzilla. To realize that they were Godzilla. They were the super beast. Their armies were the unnatural evil that arose from the sea and ravaged and destroyed without mercy. But I believe that film Godzilla Minus One is a Marxist masterpiece. I believe it 100% either intentionally or unintentionally gets just like how uh, that Korean film Parasite gets class systems and society sociologically and acceptance like uh, shame, lowness and stature, which is Japanese to the core, the idea of uh, pride and honor versus the human tendencies of wanting love and experience and uh, respect uh, self-determination versus fate, etc. But also poverty, the anti-elite. There's not one rich person in the film. Even the academics are academics alongside, shoulder to shoulder, peer to peer with working class people, veterans, sailors, uh, tugboat crew. Um, you know, even the idea of who this person was is redefined contextually by his jobs and he used to be a kamikaze pilot and before that a jet fighter but he wanted to fight and not die but then they told him to die and I would have a problem with that too because it's like I don't want a suicide mission I wanted to actually fight and survive for the future there's something inherently very wrong about that and that's the big kind of thing like war of victims because our empire our empire told us to die and threw us in a suicide mission and said it was our honor to do so, right? So, yeah, they were victimized by the Emperor Hirohito Freemasonic theatrical suicide mission that was the World War II for the Imperial cult. This is reflected in the film by the characters and their shame, but at the same time, natural resistance towards that impulse to die fruitlessly and needlessly in a war they can't win. And ultimately, the entire Japanese society of survivors agrees on that, regardless if they personally benefit and may even die in the trying of surviving. And that is Marxist to the core. That there is no surrender, there is no submission, there is an invincible human dignity even in the people who have nothing, no material possessions, and have been reduced to begging and stealing. That even those people have an intrinsic value that is defendable in every circumstance and every day uh, offers the opportunity to rise in station and dignity through self-fulfillment and labor. That's 100% the case because the guy 
goes from literally wanting to die and feeling ashamed for um, living to redefining himself in a profession, uh, working for the government, by the way, a socialist type of message, a subliminal message, working for a state-sponsored, secure, insured paycheck, right? Um, Doing a high-risk job that is necessary, so you have each according to their need, by each according to their ability, and he has the ability as an ex-man of war to uh, not only face this challenge, but desire the challenge, to desire the action, to desire the reclaiming of his honor, not in combat or in destruction and killing and death, um, but in preservation and conservation and reclamation of the natural environment, of the literal clearing of minefields, this time in Tokyo Bay, but the same action of clearing minefields you find, say, uh, post-dictatorships in Cambodia, like in the Khmer Rouge minefields, the killing fields, or in nations like in the Caucasus, Romania, Transnestria, uh, uh, the, the Serbia-Bosnia area, where there are booby traps, where there are cluster bombs, where there are landmines still being cleared out today. You see this, this Nuevo Hombre, this resurrection of the new man. That's an anti-war message. An anti-war message you can find in Metal Gear Solid a lot, especially in the sequels um, or in the smaller games like the uh, Chico tapes and stuff like that. You can find this idea of becoming a new man, turning away from past traumas, not surviving and, and thriving because you redefine yourself through pursuits that are antithetical to what drove you to being ashamed in the first place. You are literally in an act of repentance, becoming a new person through your actions, through your labor. And you control your labor, right? But the labor is only for the benefit of the state. Not one of them resorts to organized crime. Not one of them becomes rich. Not one of them becomes an employer of the others. They are all, in some way, equals. In many ways, equals, right? And redefined by experience, but in many ways, sentimentally considered equals. And there's a very important part, for example, in Godzilla Minus One, where uh, one of the characters, who's basically a lovable idiot, like a lovable fool uh, is too young to have seen combat or been drafted to fight in the war. And he wants to go fight Godzilla at the end of it. And they tell him, by they I mean the elderly academic, uh, the scientist, and the captain of the ship that they're on, tell him specifically, he is not coming along. He, he's not allowed to go with them. And they don't explain themselves and they leave driving him to be very upset, right? The fool starts crying and yelling at them. And as they walk, they begin to tear up. And they tell each other, like to tell, like whisper to each other, we are leaving him the future. And it's the idea that this Nuevo Hombre is unstoppable. That that transformation, regardless, because even if you try to preserve the past... You have to leave the future for someone who has no experience in that. Who, 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 so the best thing to do is embrace that progress, but to try to provide um, for the others, for the others who are blessed not to have 
your your own uh, misfortunes, right? You know, it's every man of destiny kind of thing. Uh, but we'll read a little bit of this Marxism and cinema article so that you can understand the historical context for such a criticism, right? It's not something that you say to be cool. Here's a little bit of background to understand the importance of where Godzilla fits in the world of film itself. But how how Marxist and Marxism and cinema evolved. So of all the arts, Vladimir Lenin reportedly claimed the most important for us is the cinema. End quote. An invention of the modern bourgeoisie The cinema is the only art form whose genesis is contemporaneous to that of capitalism. And over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries, it has been, of all the arts, perhaps the one to have had the most complex, the most stimulating, and ultimately the most conceptually fruitful relationship with Marxist theory. Moreover, historical materialism's assertion to the mutually determined relationship between theory and practice finds a concrete application in Marxist film culture, as the theorization of the cinema within the broader field of Marxist aesthetics has always been closely tied to filmmaking activities. In many cases, indeed, the same individuals have doubled as both artistic practitioners and theoreticians of their own Marxist activity. In both theory and practice, therefore, Marxist cinema has been interventionist in nature. Following the edict of Marx's 11th Farberg thesis, its adherents have not contented themselves with mere descriptions of contemporary capitalist society and the cinema's role in its ideological reproduction. Rather, they have for the most part sought to use film and film analysis to transform the world in the direction of a classless society. There's that everyone being equal thing. At the end of it, everyone who survives is equal. Clean slate. After a revolution, after a bad war, a defeat... After a destruction of a society, a cataclysmic apocalypse, natural disaster, whatever, right? The survivors are equal in the fact that they have survived. And in Godzilla Minus One, they do not immediately form artificial hierarchies. They continue, no matter how they progress, to consider themselves equals. Although one is a scientist and works at schools and professors and he has a massive amount of authority. Although some used to be captains and officers in the military. Although some used to be um, family people. They all rebuild together. They all have survived and consider themselves valuable, important human beings. So much so that not even one's life is worth losing. If they can help it. Which is a complete opposite, by the way. If you know the truth of how the Imperial Japanese, which was owned by the Freemasonic monarchs, etc. And the Freemasonic double agents and the monarchs. And the bourgeoisie of the old aristocracy of the samurai class and the new industrial merchant class. the The Yamotos. How they ran society. Which had no value and even their uh, highly trained pilots or their technologically advanced aircraft, which they threw away literally in kamikaze suicide missions. The pilot, the main character being an ex-kamikaze pilot. 
The question as to how to do this, however, has been the central point of debate amongst Marxists and the proponents of radically anti-capitalist cinema. This reoccurring debate has reproduced one of the oldest categories in classic aesthetics, the form-slash-content distinction. Whereas some have placed a premium on communicating a political message to the widest possible audience through the use of conventional film form, others have followed a more experimental approach, emphasizing the importance of developing new formal structures as part of a more comprehensive rupture with bourgeoisie cinema. Thus, following Brecht's apothem that Lenin did not just say different things from Bismarck, he also said them differently. Both perspectives, it must be said, have potential drawbacks. The former may lead to the reconstitution of the politically regressive nature of the mainstream cinema, while the latter runs a perennial risk of nullifying the potential for intelligible political discourse and alienating the prospective viewers. In the best cases, the work of Eisenstein, Vertov, Goddard, and Marker, among others, a balance is struck between those two poles. Here form, as Hegel would have declared, have it effectively becomes content. Creating new cinema forms nonetheless presupposes an ideological analysis of the pre-existing norms of the commercial cinema, whose supreme avatar is the globally dominant Hollywood film industry. As Cathier's Dear Cinema editors John Lewis Camoli and Jean Narboni argued, the cinema is a comparison with other art forms, particularly determined by the dominant ideology of a given society. In two ways. Firstly, films were traditionally extremely expensive to produce, which meant that the kind of free artistic experimentation that has been marked the history of music, literature, and painting has been far more difficult to sustain in the cinema, which has generally required a mass audience to be financially viable. Secondly, as a medium preponderantly based on a photographic image, film has a tendency to reinforce the existing ideology by creating an unrivaled sensation in the viewer that the on-screen images reflect the reality they purport to represent. For many Marxists, this film is realism is one of the most powerful tools for creating revolutionary cinema. But another strand of Marxist film theory sees cinema as resting on a fundamental illusion based more on the visual codes developed by the modern bourgeoisie. This stems all the way back from Renaissance paintings, then on an innate relationship with perceptual reality. The history of historical materialism, decades-long encounter with cinema, has been marked by numerous debates of the kind. Indeed, it is perhaps appropriate in the year 2023 to speak of a century of Marxist cinema. Already in 1896, the Russian novelist and socialist Maxim Gorky attended his first film screening and famously likened his experience to entering the Kingdom of Shadows. For the first 20 years of the cinema's history, however, its relationship with Marxism was tenuous and ill-defined at best. It was only in the late 1910s that the links between the two concretized and two main reasons the cinema itself was maturing as an art form and with the advent of the feature-length format and the advances made in film styles by figures such as D.W. Griffith and Abel Gantz. At the same time, October Revolution in Russia saw the rise of the world's first proletarian state. 
Under the leadership of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, a nation's film industry was placed in the hands of an avowedly Marxist political movement, and a decade after the conclusion of the Russian Civil War in 1921 saw an unprecedented flowering of both artistic experimentation and the attempts to theoretically grapple with the medium of cinema in the USSR and the East. With figures such as Sergei Eisenstein, Zaghi, Vertov, and Viswald Pudovkin playing a fundamental role in the endeavor. The hundred years since the Russian Revolution has seen an uninterrupted intertwining of Marxist praxis and cinema, one that continues to the present day. Even if the intensity of this relationship has ebbed and flowed with periods of revolutionary optimism. The 1920s through the 1960s, for example often followed by waves of political repression and reaction from the 1970s through the 1990s. From our present standpoint, nine distinct configurations of Marxist cinema delineated both chronologically and geographically can be traced out over the last hundred years. This is Soviet cinema, one, one Soviet cinema. You have two, uh, the Weimar cinema and German critical theory. You have three, Italian neorealism. Four, post-war French cinema. Five, the cinema of May 68, which is 1968. Revolutionary uh, year, basically, for cinema. It's also when films started going, like, really into color. Like, common films, like, like the common man could make a film in color. Six, third cinema. Seven, screen theory in the UK and the USA. And eight, postmodernist film and theory. Nine, contemporary cinema, a rebirth of Marxism. And that is cinema predominantly made in Latin America as well as in Asian nations. And I would like to believe that this Godzilla Minus One film is a installment in what they described as the intertwining between the message and the image are the function and the content, which is the function of creating a monster film to further the franchise of a mimetic, a doom mimetic of Godzilla to sell Godzilla tickets for Godzilla fans. Rawr, listen to the big monster, watch him stomp around. Isn't that fun? And like I said, it's made mostly for children and it's made mostly for people who are Japanophiles at that. Or have a particular fetish with the idea of stepping on people, uh, the size, the power, thing like that, like the fascination with it. Yes, we get that that all works, and that's what gets the money through the door. But it's being used as a message to convey highly political themes. That's inherently true. But what those themes are changes film to film... And I think it's obviously based on the current sociology of the time, especially in Japan, but I believe the undercurrent of it has always been to somehow create the sense of a centralized control of the narrative 
of the tragedies and brutalities of the Pacific Theater of World War II. Found this great article on Godzilla itself as a franchise, and I will end this episode about Doomsday Mimetics with it, as I believe it captures it perfectly. This is written in 2007, before the American reboot, and nearly 10 years after the last American entry into the franchise, during a decade of very little in the way of mainstream news or even Hollywood blockbuster action. So keep that in mind that someone wrote this article. In 2007 without it being relevant just because it was on their mind and they did a great fucking job doing it Godzilla there's a poignantly sad message behind Godzilla the giant fire breathing guy in a rubber suit lizard which has replaced Dao and the samurai as the overwhelmingly spiritual metaphor for the national identity of the Japan of the Japanese It's as if Jerry Springer came over to your house on Thanksgiving Day, a mortifying exposure of every fucked up, shame-tainted neurosis presented to the world as entertainment. We're not laughing with the Japanese. We're not even laughing at them. We're just uncomfortably adverting our eyes from their naked national psyche waiting for the painful honesty and inferiority complex to play itself out before the fun city-smashing rampage can begin. Now granted, being the only nation in history to fall victim to nuclear war will do strange things to a country and its people. It just highlights the strangeness of modern life that the most lasting and easily the most visible consequence of history's single most significant destructive wartime event should be the Godzilla Monster franchise. Godzilla first burst onto the scene in 1954 in Godzilla King of the Monsters, which, like the original Frankenstein or Dracula, the first Godzilla movie was a serious and reasonably scary sci-fi flick. Filmed in black and white on a minuscule budget, The monster himself was pretty cheesy looking and clearly a guy in a rubber suit, but damn it, it was good, especially at the time. The movie also carried a grim and pretty overt message about the horrors of nuclear war, since Godzilla was a mutant beast created by radioactive contamination. Coming from the only victims of the atomic bomb ever, the message was reasonably compelling. The movie was a smash hit, assisted in part by the addition of footage featuring Raymond Burr for an American release. It immediately spawned a sequel, Godzilla Raids Again, which added a second monster for Godzilla to fight, formally spawning the genre of kaiju, a Japanese word which translates as a giant monster, unsurprisingly. That was when things started getting weird. Godzilla has spawned nearly 30 official movies, as well as a host of spin-offs. The films range from spectacles to farces to just plain insanity. The one thing most of the films have in common is that they really, really make you wonder about what goes on in Japan. After the success of Godzilla, several other giant monsters debuted in movies of their own, including Rodan, an oversized pterodactyl, Mothra, a giant 
moth. Mothra is a moth in spirit, but if not by virtue of any meaningful anatomical resemblance. Mothra also has two tiny women who sing to it and... Well, we're getting distracted, but take my word for it, Mothra is just bizarre. Virtually all of the kaiju would eventually duke it out with Godzilla, sometimes several at once, in giant wrestling matches, with the notable exception of Gamera, a giant flying turtle made by a competing film company with its own cult following and audience. Godzilla vs. Gamera is the ultimate dream match for fans of the genre, and sooner or later, the money men will get around to doing it. In format and execution, Godzilla movies are a lot like professional wrestling. Monsters run up and attack each other for no apparent reason, motive, or agenda. Monsters who were enemies in one movie are friends in the next. Heel monsters regularly turn babyface and vice versa. The concept of continuity is for losers. Not only do Godzilla movies routinely ignore preceding Godzilla movies, but they will happily ignore the storyline of the immediately preceding movie in the series, rebooting it, or occasionally ignoring even all of them, creating their own separate timelines. Toho, the company who owns Godzilla, has pressed the reset button on the franchise at least three times, which means that there are at least four totally contradictory movies which purport the direct sequels or remakes of Godzilla 1945, 1955, 1954, sorry. This has to be some kind of reboot record, challenged only by Spider-Man or Batman. U.S. filmmakers decided to track take a crack at Godzilla in 1998, but the results was a barely watchable bit of tripe that destroyed the charm of the original and lacked the key components that lends Godzilla its weird charm, namely the Japanese national dysfunction. Having been the victims of not one but two nuclear blasts combined with the complete disarmament of a nation whose law reveres the warrior figure, Bushido Code, has left the Japanese psyche seriously fucked up as the country's fucked-up relationship with Godzilla and America amply demonstrates. In his debut, Godzilla shows up, trashes the country, and generally wreaks a lot of misery, but as the sequels keep coming on, Godzilla changed from enemy of the state to abusive boyfriend of the nation. Sure, he flies into a rage and trashes the place when he's there, but damn it, we'd love him anyway. Through the end of the 1950s and the early 1960s, the ambiguity ran thick through the Godzilla films, most typically playing out with Godzilla making an appearance which scares the shit out of everyone, and then an even worse monster showing up, and Godzilla fighting that monster before disappearing into the sea again. Through the end of the 1950s and the early 1960s, this ambiguity ran thick through the Godzilla films. Most typically playing out with Godzilla making an appearance which scares the shit out of everyone, and then an even worse monster showing up, Godzilla fights that monster before disappearing into the sea. As the 1960s wore on and the movies began to multiply, Godzilla stopped being so scary and started to be downright lovable. By the time of Godzilla vs. Monster Zero... One of the weirdest head trips ever committed to film, <clears throat> Godzilla was firmly viewed as the protector of Japan, which is why the aliens from Planet X kidnap him and subject him to evil mind control. <clears throat> With the addition of Minya, aka known as Baby Godzilla, the whole franchise pretty much took a steep dive into the maudlin 
and Godzilla was firmly on the side of the angels, fighting off evil threats like the alien cyborg known as Gigan, a monster sent by evil cockroaches disguised as men to conquer the Earth after their planet was destroyed by pollution. King Ghidorah, otherwise known as Monster X, Monster Zero, a three-headed dragon and one of the coolest non-Godzilla kaiju ever designed, and Hedora, the smog monster, literally living oil spill created out of pollution. Minya himself was a precursor to Pokemon, just the cutest darn thing you ever saw, and his film is 100% created for children and the spirit of little children in short shorts running around an island with monster pals. He blows little smoke rings instead of breathing fire. Aww. They're always cute when they're puppies. The recurring plots of these movies swing between a wildly grandiose version of Japan's status in the world and a strange masochistic desire to absorb punishment. After all, every single alien invader or evil monster on the planet seemed to be unwaveringly drawn to Japan, specifically Tokyo, their capital, clearly the most important nation of the most important ethnicity and race of people in the world. But at the same time, these monster battles were unbelievably epics of city carnage, collateral damage, and casualties, leaving Japanese cities and often the capital itself with monuments never missed in flames and ruins over and over again. There are few iconic monuments in Japan that have not been destroyed by Godzilla over the course of 70 years of films. The movies also featured the Japanese military in all its fearsome might, which was a pretty good sign of the dysfunction since there had been no Japanese military to speak of since World War II, and every single time they are powerless to defend their own country. The franchise began to lose direction with a series of films that downplayed Japan's role as center for the monster attacks, focusing on Monster Island, a fictitious landscape, or other rural locations, such as Wild Islands or the Arctic, that removed the major attractions of the films, namely the sites of the cities being demolished in all their miniature glory, and B, removed the punished the people of Japan theme that masochists and fetishists believed was the heart of the whole zeitgeist. The reasons for punishing the people of Japan varied, but it usually had something to do with pollution or their despicable tendency to be the victims of atomic weapons. The popularity of the films began to wane into the 70s. After a short hiatus, Toho decided that the best thing to do was completely reinvent the franchise from the ground up. So they rebooted it and made Godzilla 1984, 
which was a sequel to the 1954 original and pointedly ignored everything that had been committed to film in between. From Gigantus to Gigan to Megalon to Hedorah to Rodan to Planet X, all of it that was canon was now not. Godzilla 1984 harkened back to the fucked up worldview of the original Namely, that Japan was being punished for its evil ways, and the whole atom bomb thing was really, really bad. Raymond Burr even reprised his role from the original movie as that white guy in Japan. The new film was a smash hit, and the sequel machine shifted into high gear. However, things that changed for Japan? In the 1950s and 60s, Japan was still suffering through its post-war comeuppance. In the 1980s and 1990s, Japan had been transformed into a technological and economic powerhouse, leading the world in technology and banking. The new series of Godzilla movies released through the 1990s had to come up with a whole new series of rationales about why Japan deserved to be punished. In the most overtly political film of the new series, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, White guys, Americans from the future, come back through time to quote-unquote help Japan by getting rid of Godzilla. However, the Americans have a hidden agenda. You see, in the future, Japan's economic might has grown so great that all the other nations of the world are only fractions in comparison to the Japanese domination of Earth. The disgruntled Americans get rid of Godzilla, but replace him with King Ghidorah, the three-headed golden dragon, whose purpose is to destroy Japan so that Americans can take their place as the rightful inheritors of the world. Oh, but wait, there's more. We also learn the secret origin of Godzilla, who was once a surviving dinosaur on a Pacific island where he saved a garrison of Japanese soldiers from a bloodthirsty platoon of American troops. During World War II, then was subsequently exposed to the radiation which transformed him into Godzilla proper. So Godzilla is not only pro-Japan, he is overtly anti-American. The time-traveling Americans fail to stop Godzilla from being created, but they do manage to cause him to be reborn as an even bigger guy in a rubber suit and with a nastier disposition. This is explicitly laid out in the movie as Godzilla is no longer a friend to Japan. The Americans at some point explain their reasoning in having Japan destroyed, which is that the Japanese have become arrogant and vain dictators, and they aren't careful enough with their nuclear waste polluting the rest of the world. Thus, they deserve everything they theoretically have coming to them, though they, have not, they are not guilty of it at the moment. The movie ends with the one Japanese woman from the future saving the country from Godzilla using a borgified King Ghidorah known as Mecha Ghidorah. The moral of the story is decidedly unclear, except as a ominous warning to improve their handling of radioactive wastes and nuclear energy. 
Despite all this, Godzilla continued to have an ambiguous relationship with the Japanese throughout the remainder of the 1990s, generally trashing the place but occasionally defending it with something worse than himself, until the big guy finally bit the bullet in Godzilla vs. Destroya, in which Godzilla is about to have a nuclear meltdown in his radioactive heart and destroy the whole world, but instead manages to save Japan once again from an even worse monster once again before heroically going down with the ship himself along with a recently reconstituted Minya, a.k.a. Baby Godzilla. You'd think we would be done by now, but it just keeps going. After the American Godzilla failed to garner critical plaudits in 1998, Toho went back to the well for Godzilla 2000, which again ignored all the previous movies except the first which is um, basically the holy grail, the standard Godzilla 1954 in which the big green stomping machine defends Japan against a worse menace but subsequently viciously trashes the country and the effort a few more sequels entertained but didn't reignite the phenomenon perhaps because they never articulated what Japan was being punished for in the 21st century. So they hit the reset button one more time for Godzilla vs. Mothra vs. Ghidorah, giant monsters all-out attack. This time they explained that Godzilla was actually the demonic incarnation of all the dead souls of the Japanese soldiers killed in World War II, which are still haunting the nation of Japan. This is why he can't be killed by conventional weapons, which introduces the supernatural as well as the connection that can never be severed. No matter how much progress in the future is made to grow away from it, the dead can never be silenced or forgotten or allowed to be forgotten else they doom and constantly remind everyone of the destruction that befell them. That is, of being struck by the atomic weapons, the atomic bombs of America. This with complete video game aesthetic for the newer generations seem to rebuild the franchise's lost fan base. But interestingly, with all this going on, not one single Godzilla movie has ever suggested that the big guy is avenging the hundreds of thousands of civilians, not soldiers, killed by the United States atomic bombings or firebombings of the country. Frankly, this oversight is downright bizarre. If the Japanese ever had a legit beef with the United States, it would have to be the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the civilian population, not the military. Instead of confronting the issues head-on and letting the healing process begin and demanding that the guilty be held accountable and making their case internationally, this mass entertainment vehicle has taken on a life of its own that it can't fully explain. With the major purpose of intentionally asking and unintentionally answering the question, what the fuck is wrong with Japanese people? A massive worldwide relief effort could perhaps send teams of psychologists and doctors and spiritual healers of every kind to Japan 
to help that population collectively come to terms with the wrenching pain of their own history and identity and allow them to finally, once and for all, rise from the atomic ashes of World War II like a phoenix. But then we probably wouldn't have any more Godzilla movies if that happened. If their internalized victimization was not forever exploited for profits, Japan might finally move on. It's unfortunate that sometimes you have to suffer for the sake of art. If you're really lucky, though, you can get someone else to suffer for the sake of your entertainment. That being said, let me explain a little bit more about the context of the original Godzilla. The Godzilla 1954. And how the Doom meme, the memetics of Doom, that we know of Godzilla were created. context and background and real life history and everything. Tell it like it is to shoot it straight. On March 1st, 1954, the United States conducted a next generation nuclear test on the Marshall Islands because the ensuing hydrogen bomb blast that had been foretold or predicted was several times more powerful than the expect- expectations a Japanese or than expected. Sorry. This is translated, so let me try to Retranslates it again to common English. So yeah, on March 1st, 1954, the United States of America conducted a next-generation nuclear test on the Marshall Islands because the ensuing hydrogen bomb blast was several times more powerful than expected. A Japanese fishing boat, the Daigo Fukumaru, was caught in the fallout. The crew caught acute radiation syndrome and when head radio operator... Yamo Ikichi died six months later thanks to a bout of hepatitis from a subsequent dirty blood transfusion. His last words were to quote Please make sure I am the last victim of the bomb. It would be one month later that Shiro Honda debuted a classic film that would go on to directly inspire anti-nuclear weapons messages of the 20th century and later become a pop culture icon. Gojira, known as Godzilla in the West, may be the most famous Japanese creation around the world. Known today for a wacky innovation of the genre known as kaiju, giant monster films, with Suitmation, a man in a rubber suit, itself taking on artistic, you know, legendary status in the artistic world. 
including camera tricks and miniature cities as special effects to portray giant monsters on a low budget. This admittedly silly technique first originated as an imaginative means of coping with an otherwise unspeakable reality of nuclear annihilation that haunted the psychologies of the artists of Japan. The film begins with a direct reference to the Diego incident as a peaceful civilian vessel is suddenly attacked by some mysterious eldritch horror rising with a flashing of light from deep within the sea. Today, of course, we all know going into the movie that this primeval disturbance will be the original Godzilla. But back then, the audience, especially the first audiences, must have immediately seen the reference to the atomic weapons flash. Godzilla takes its time ramping up suspense and only shows the giant lizard very briefly in the first half of the film, and most of it is actually about the Japanese public dealing with the intrusion of the unknown and with life in the post-war democracies. The so-called Nuclear Age film follows a number of interrelated characters from a kindly paleontologist named Kiyoyama, to his daughter Amiko and two men in her life. The handsome young Ogato of the a man of the moment and the future and the doctor scarred war veteran of the failed war Dasuku Serizawa. Emiko is a Japanese I'm oh, sorry. Sarizawa Emiko uh, as was Japanese custom prior to the U.S. occupation that began in 1945, Amiko has been assigned a husband, Dr. Sarazar, by her father, Professor. However, once the disturbance at sea is revealed to be the giant lizard sea monster known as Godzilla, and Japan is sent into chaos, soon the entire world follows. As Amiko decides the time has come to ask her father to permission to wed the man that she truly loves. Dr. Suizawa, who lost an eye fighting the Allies, has come back from the war a changed man. He shows Amiko a prototype superweapon he's developed and it terrifies her. Suizawa cares about his mad science projects, weapons and war more than he does her her desires to create a family or to pursue the art of love still he insists that everything remains secret alluding to the fact that Japan was now forbidden to pursue weapons or arts of war especially in this post-defeat era known as the Reconstruction. The father is less obsessed with her love life and entirely committed to the question of how to stop the monster 
who began to destroy islands, bridges, and trains. Despite the Japanese ground self-defense forces' best efforts, Godzilla runs rampage across major coastal cities. A task force that has assembled to defeat the giant lizard to try to use a technique that uses electricity. But just when they think that this will work, the giant beast Godzilla shows the world in an attack on Tokyo that it's invulnerable to such conventional weapons. His dragon-like nuclear fire breath with the electrocution plan, a bus, it's only once a battalion of fighter jets zooms in as a distraction that the authorities can safely evacuate the civilians in Godzilla's path. The fighter jets being emblematic to the air power used by the United States going into the 1950s and not Japan's own ability to defend itself. In many ways, the, Jap- the American Air Force is considered as self the most fearsome tool of domination and conquest the world has ever known. The only option left is to try and use the secret weapon that Dr. Sherazawa has shown Amiko, which he calls the Oxygen Destroyer. It strips water of oxygen and liquefies any creature within its wake on a molecular level, dissolving flesh in an instant down to the bone. She t- Amiko, his wife, tells the man that she really loves, her paramour, and together they confront Sarazar, demanding that he use it to kill Godzilla. But Sarazar then reveals his true fears of ever unveiling the weapon to the people, fearing that it could lead the entire human race into a new arms race. Should they weaponize it like they have nuclear energy? This is critical in distrusting of his own government as a warlike, belligerent people. That if he unveils this weapon to save them, he fears that they will use it as an atomic weapon of their own in revenge against the Americans or to start new wars against other innocent people. Proving that he is not a monster. He's not cold-hearted. He's not a machine. He's not sadistic or evil. He is misunderstood. He is complex. He is a brilliant scientist. Yes, he was scarred and damaged and made cynical and darkened in the war. But he still is mature and noble enough to see at a larger level than even his young wife and her lover or their father the consequences of all actions, especially of this destructive level. In the end, Amiko's wish is fulfilled. The people of Japan are saved by Dr. Serizawa, who is redeemed through a selfless act of sacrifice as he commits an attack like a kamikaze pilot, detonating his weapon underwater, face-to-face with Godzilla, sharing this fate, and forever keeping the secrets 
with him in the grave. The melodrama speaks to the massive generational and cultural shifts taking place in Japan since the War of 1947. The Constitution established only the democracy that we see in the film still as a burgeoning and unfamiliar presence in Japan. But specifically, women's rights in terms of those to marry and how to vote were brand new. Godzilla makes this cultural shift one of its central themes through the interplay between modern science and the ancient and pre-modern rituals and religions of shamanistic Japan, of Shinto Japan. Importantly, Dr. Yaman is a paleontologist, a scientist who uses modern methods to study and investigate beings who walked the earth eons ago, one clue at a time. And the first clue that he finds that helps dis- or explain Godzilla's prehistoric origins is a trilobite fossil, an extinct marine organism that was wiped out during the Permian Epoch's mass extinction event around 250 million years ago. This leads him to conclude that Godzilla is a massive monster footprint are them Godzilla's massive monster footprints which are radioactive as they as they deduce in tests uh, being from some kind of ancient sea beast who's been angered and unleashed by the underwater nuclear tests of the Americans this discovery can, coincides with an earlier scene of several villagers from a fictional Odo Island and an elder there who explains that for generations on the island, they ritualistically sacrificed young virgin girls to some terrible monster to protect their island from their attack. They called this monster Godzilla, or Gojira, but now all that remains of the old custom is a ritual itself to symbolize these days. This kind of pantomime or theatrical symbolism of the old as an entertainment mirrors the creation of the film Godzilla or Gajira 1954 as a metaphor and symbol for the war and the desperate actions taken by those involved civilians and soldiers alike. Godzilla is a punishment for the modernization and westernization of Japan, and he has been sent by the planet herself to protect the environment from the consequences of a possible nuclear holocaust. Some say Godzilla is merely a freak accident or a mutant born from the eldritch terrors of radiation. It's never completely explained, but whatever the true cause of the nature of the beast was intentionally horrifyingly ambiguous. And this is where the success of Godzilla seems to directly relate to the fears within Japanese society at the time surrounding radiation survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki attacks. The survivors of each 
were considered social pariahs in the pro-United States Reconstruction era, as were political enemies, activists, and opponents to westernization. They were dubbed the Hibakushu and were stigmatized and shunned. In the same way their ancestors shunned outsiders or those with mixed ethnicities. Urban myths still persist in Japan now with some Japanese still believing radiation poisoning is contagious and hereditary. In fact, many survivors of radiation treatments are still considered hibakasha, including the survivors of the Fukushima disaster in 2011. This mass hysteria had to do with the secretive nature of nuclear weapons, as well as atomic science, and the grim reality that the atomic bombs dropped on the country were done so mainly as a sort of science experiment. It would be decades, in fact, before the full epidemiological impact of the bombs would be accounted for in terms of things like cancer rates and birth defects. This controversial and disturbing contemporary issue would be directly alluded to in the Gajira franchise upon exposure to the fire and fury of Godzilla's atomic dragon breath. In the 1954 film, Gojira is seen literally melting people with the breath and the flash of light, which is 100% symbolic of the people who died from the flash and heat waves of the atomic blast. Their shadows literally burnt into the sidewalks and concrete walls of buildings. As as Tokyo is attacked by Gojira, its shelters and hospitals fill just as they did during the war with the wounded and sick and dying and dead. This is graphically shown in detail in the 1954 film. Lowing to European realism at the time. Surely the nighttime scenes illuminated by a Tokyo ablaze would have unmistakably conjured to mind in 1954 the still living memory of the single deadliest air raid of World War II. The March 1945 Tokyo Air Raids were also known as the Night of the Black Snow, and the way we see Japanese aircraft valiantly distracting the giant monster by Tokyo time would be veiled nod to the Imperial Army Air Service who struggled in vain against the Allies, only temporarily halting their advance across the Pacific Ocean and onto the Japanese shores. The same progress that Godzilla makes mirroring the intended plan for X-Day, known as Invasion Day, the U.S. military plan to invade mainland Japan through Tokyo Bay. To some degree, an invasion story like this 
with all its relevance to the Pacific War, speaks to the heavy censorship that Japan formerly faced under the American occupation and its own puppet government, which ended officially in 1952, but saw everything from the seizure of all samurai swords to the forced distribution of bread, a foreign food staple, into their culture. A complete westernization and subtle, unspoken, forced submission to American culture post-World War II. Perfectly symbolized, by the way, with Hirohito signing a peace declaration on an American warship to symbolize the origins of Pearl Harbor and the significance of the control of Japan by the U.S. Navy. Not the President of the United States, not the uh, civilian members of Congress, but by the act, by, by active military, specifically uh, U.S. Navy and U.S. Army and Marine Corps uh, commanders. That they did not sue for peace, they were conquered militarily. When it came to any material that could be construed as an explicitly pro-empire message, it was outlawed or heavily censored. This is, for example, why there was an American version of the film made where they introduced the American character Raymond Burr. Basically, Orson Welles look-alike and, and sound-alike Raymond Burr to Americanize and Angloize the Godzilla film, not for profits in America, but to create the copy forever, including the American seal of approval and censoring out what they did not approve of. Gojira can be interpreted many ways. It is not inherently anti-American or pro-imperial Japanese since the measure of the restoration of the end of the 19th century had been rapidly abandoning its pastoral traditions anyway into industrialization and the rule of a modernized military class. In many ways, a fascist government of Japan in a bid to become more westernized anyway and competitive anyway, including adoption of Western cultural revisions on a massive scale. That march towards progress ironic, ironically descended into the 1930s and 40s with the return to totalitarianism and cultural exceptionalism as they invaded and waged an aggressive war on other Asian Eastern neighbors. The once booming merchant class and educational class were given second status to the once ruling feudal classes 
and everything from Samurai Revivalism, which was a former enemy of the Imperial Family of Japan in the 1800s, were given the spotlight through the film industry of the Japanese nation. This idealized and completely new version vision of its highly militant and oppressive past is hardly worse than anything Godzilla can be charged with doing on film. These can only be read sociologically if we read it as a cathartic confrontation of the real by a notoriously closed-off society, a metaphor with its own monsters and demons, the burgeoning atmosphere of the Cold War represented in the science fiction and horror of the 19th of the Godzilla franchise. being a parallel to the creation of the Edo periods and samurai era high fantasy I've seen in a lot of Kurosawa films that is also uniquely Japanese to think about the growing martial arts films, the ninja movies, the samurai films, uh, Last Samurai, things like that, being modern incarnations of them, versus the Godzilla films as they enter the 20th century. Both of those films begin becoming made as genres. Like, oh, there's all these samurai films and ninja films and martial arts films, which are completely modern fictions meant to glorify the old imperial military of Japan and get past the censorship of the United States, which is declaring anything positive about the old imperial order to be illegal. And then you have Godzilla, who is the criticism of the post-war, or the the Western anti-United States message, anti-Cold War message, anti-nuclear weapon message, anti-war message, of the modern world hitting that target. They're parallel metaphors, parallel entertainment uh, inventions, parallel memetics. It is a universal human impulse to construct ever more super weapons as well as super metaphors and amass ever-growing expanses of memetics to communicate every form of power at the film court. I guess that means like movie theater. And this this originally, this is written in French, by the way. I want to say that right now. This is written in French and translated in English. They are raised our own race against our gravest threat. After all, one way or another, Godzilla is a consequence of human folly where one can only redeem themselves through sacrifice as a former combatant by protecting themselves and protecting the entirety of Japan, but also the entire world 
which is the responsibility of the Japanese. The film posits that Godzilla is a primordial creature only reawakened thanks to the nuclear human experiments, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, not the Bikini Atoll experiments in modern films. If these tests continue, we're told more Godzillas will inevitably result. This being a veiled metaphor for the burgeoning anti-war conscience of the populations of people awakened to the experiment of dropping atomic bombs in warfare. With more atomic wars, people will join this awakened movement of anti-war, anti-nuclear energy that itself is unstoppable and is the enemy of all militaries around the world. Godzilla, as a nuclear-born monstrosity, will continue to return as long as nuclear weapons remain a threat the way that the movie shows. With the investigation of its monster with pseudo-realistic science fiction elements being blending ways of how to understand reality through academic study and proving itself only able to catch up with the phenomenology of the central conflict, the social and political melodrama that is repeated in each film. At the end, to finish the monster, a weapon that is worse than the monster needs to be created. Thus asserting that mankind and his domination through the mind will inevitably doom himself either intentionally or unintentionally, with the best case being a noble self-sacrifice for the preservation of the human race of innocence and of the future. The outlandish pop culture science fiction franchise that, it, that generated from such a stark message is the masterpiece and the art of cinema itself with the ability to symbolize very real events, traumas, and fears ripped right out of today's headlines past, present, and future and tell them in simplified language, spectacle, and imagery that's understandable 
on a subliminal level for children. Godzilla as a kind of forensic disaster movie serves as a warning for future generations never to become complacent. That danger and death can lurk around every corner and can arise from the sea at any minute. And that the common man suffers the worst from the effects of doomsday events that occur beyond their control. Thus is life in the 20th century, thus is life in the 21st century. That the family man, that the family woman, the mother, the father, the child... The student, the worker, the artist, the dreamer, the common proletariat, they pay the price when their cities are destroyed by enemy bombers because of their politicians' betrayal. They pay the price for the world events, the turbulence back in Moscow brings the turmoil on the average Russian's head. Just like the turmoil in D.C. brings the bill to the foot of the American taxpayer. And just like how the emperor of Japan, not wanting to be the emperor of Japan anymore, saw the sacrifice of the Japanese way of life. Sacrifice to the god of Western imperialism the God of America, the God of money and capitalism. Thank you all very much for listening to this broadcast of Beyond Top Secret Texas. We talked about Godzilla and the Memetics of Doom, the Doomsday Memetic, the Doom Memetic. Learned about how we interpret film, how we dissect these things that we are attracted to on a human level and try to pierce the veil and turn the lead into gold. Turn the human sweat and shit of daily life into... Ambrosia to make us immortal like the gods upon Olympia. Thank you for joining me during this. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for donating on Cash App. Thank you for sharing online. Thank you for sharing and reviewing, giving those five stars. Appreciate that. God bless you and your families. Peace out.